Okay, if you want to go ahead and take your seats. And while you take your seats, let me ask every single person, whether you are watching this online, if you're listening to this on a podcast, or if you're here in person, pull out your Bible, if you would, to Acts chapter 24. Now, we didn't always have cell phones, right? When I was younger, nobody had cell phones. Now, just about everybody has cell phones. And guess what? What comes with cell phones are all the games, are all of the interesting websites, are all of your sports scores. And some of you, I am sure, are going to be tempted, even right now while I'm speaking, to be on your cell phone looking at anything else but the Word of God. I'm going to ask you to do something. (laughs) He said it, not me, and I agree. But if you're going to have your cell phone open, some of you don't have your Bible with you, I would encourage you, find a Bible app. version is excellent. There's others online. They're all free. Get onto a Bible app, Acts chapter 24. And let me tell you something that I learned a long time ago. I believe it with all my heart. If you have a disregard for God's word, that means you are taking him in vain. That means vain means to empty God's name out of its significance, to bring it down, to reduce it to the common. If you reduce the Bible to the common, well, then it won't be a surprise when you go to church and it's the sermon time and it's really not very helpful. It's not very transformative. But what you're looking at or what you have in your hand right now, whether it's on your smartphone or your Bible like I've got, is the inerrant inspired word of God. It is his words. He has breathed them out to us. And he did that to reveal who he is and to reveal what his will is for you and for me. So I'm going to encourage everybody here, no games. And if you're sitting near somebody that's got games on, just gently tell them, I am going to smash your phone to pieces. (laughs) I don't know how you gently say that. If a fight breaks out, I'll know you took my words literally. Acts chapter 24. Now we're going to climb into the octagon. The octagon is a fighting arena. And we're going to climb in there with Paul. And round two is about to begin. Pastor Kyle took us around one last week. And there's going to be a contest between the Jewish authorities who want to see Paul killed... And Paul, who is all by himself, he is all alone, but he has God on his side. There's a different judge for this round than there was for last round that you heard last week. This round, it is not Claudius Lysias. That was the tribune. He has transferred Paul. The case was too big for him. The fight was too big. He transferred Paul to the Roman governor, whom we are about to meet And along with transferring him, he sent him a written report about what had transpired. There was a failed assassination attempt on Paul's life. They tried to kill him. Paul's now safely, I put that in air quotes because his life hangs in the balance. He is safely in custody. But whether he will live or die, whether he wins this contest or not, is going to, well, at least from an earthly perspective, it's going to depend on the opinion of the new judge. 
Luke is going to get his ringside. He wrote Acts. He's going to take his ringside. I'm going to be your color commentator. I'm going to take you behind the scenes, this entire message. You're going to learn a lot more about what's behind the words of Scripture than you ever knew. And what we're going to see in this second round is the attack of the enemy, number one, the defense of Paul, number two, and the decision from the judge, number three. So let's get right into it, shall we? Number one, the attack of the enemy. Now, I hope you have your Bibles open. Remember, nobody's playing games. Let's respect God's word. Let's hold it high. Acts chapter 24, and look at what it says in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Here's the attack. The heavy hitters have come to fight, including the highest guy there is in the religious structure of the Jewish people. He's a high priest. His name is Ananias. By the way, interestingly, he's got just over a decade left to live. He was one of the most corrupt priests in Jewish history. This is Ananias. He was a friend of Rome. And very soon, about a decade into the future, 10 years into the future, maybe a little bit more, Jewish zealots are going to rise up. They're going to burn his house down. He's going to escape. He's going to flee to Herod's palace, but he's going to get trapped in the aqueducts and put to death. That's what's coming for Ananias. In fact, Paul is about to prophesy of that. This wicked priest, Ananias, he did not come alone, however. He brought a hired hitter, a very heavy puncher, an attorney who was a trained orator, a spokesman. His name is Tertullus. And the fight's not taking place in Caesar's palace, but in Caesarea. It's a city built by the godless master builder, Herod the Great, the one who was infamously ordering the babies, uh, two year, male babies, two years and younger, put to death in Bethlehem. That's Herod the Great. But he was an architectural genius. He built the town of Caesarea. He built the temple of God in Jerusalem. He built a lot of other things. He built this town, Caesarea, as a gift for his very good friend, Caesar Augustus. That's the emperor in Rome at that time. This city had aqueducts. It had underground sewers. It had state-of-the-art harbor. It had amphitheaters. It had a pagan temple dedicated to Augustus in Israel's land. It was 65 miles from Jerusalem. So they transferred Paul from Jerusalem, 65 miles away to Jerusalem, right on the Mediterranean Sea. And both Herod and the Roman governor, they would live there unless they were needed in Jerusalem, unless there was a festival in Jerusalem. This is usually where they lived. Now the bell is about to sound. The fight is about to begin at the nod of their governor. And Tertullus attacks with a flurry of flattery. Let's read it, verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, Paul, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace. Remember, he's speaking to the governor. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, that is the governor, 
Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, every spokesman knew. Don't take a lot of time in your opening remarks. You're not going to get a lot of time. But what time you get, you better start with flattery. Flattery is empty praise. It's what we do when we are trying to manipulate others. You can do it. I can do it. We must not do that because we're not being truth tellers when we do. Felix is the judge. He's the Roman governor. He is the one that's going to make the decision on this fight. He is absolutely hated by the Jewish rulers. One positive thing, and virtually only one positive thing, that Felix had done for Israel was to suppress some of the bands of men called the Sicarii. Now, I mentioned that zealots assassinated Ananias, the high priest. They will do that in about 13 years. But there was a radical splinter group among the zealots called the Sicarii. They used violence, listen, against both the Romans and the Jewish friends of Rome. If you were a Jewish man or woman and you were a collaborator of Rome, a friend of Rome, you were in their crosshairs as well. Here's what they would do. They would sneak up behind a Roman person in a crowd. They would pull out from their cloak a short dagger. That's what Sicari means. It means dagger, short sword. They would plunge it into the kidneys of the back of that Roman citizen, and they would walk away in the melee and the riots undiscovered. Governor Felix suppressed this group's activities, but beyond that, he was a brutal, unjust ruler. Let me tell you a little fun story. It's actually a very brutal and not fun story at all. Let me tell you what happened right before Jesus came to live in Nazareth. The zealots were going throughout, well, let me back up just a little bit. Herod the Great had died. It created a power vacuum. And in that power vacuum, all of these zealots, all of these Sicarii started to start these open rebellions against Rome. Here comes a man named Varus to a town in Galilee four miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, four miles away, here comes Varus. He crucified 2,000 Jewish rebels all along the main road that leads into the city of Zephorus. See, they didn't really take kindly to those who rebelled against Rome, and Governor Felix was no different than Varus. He was brutal. He was an unjust ruler. Yet here we've got Tertullus, who is opening up the fight with a flurry of flattery, trying to butter him up. Look what he says in verse 5. For we have found this man a plague. He's pointing to Paul. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Those were his opening remarks. That was his attack. And he gave three punches to Paul. The first was meant to be a knockout blow. First, he states that Paul was a plague causing riots throughout the world. Now, why did I tell you about Varus? crucifying 2,000 Jews? Why did I tell you about Felix and his brutal, unjust rulership? It's because Rome 
demanded that people keep the peace. And I'm going to teach you some Latin. Everybody's going to say it with me, all right? Be ready. Here's your Latin phrase, Pax Romana. Everybody say that, Pax Romana. Uh, that was not everybody. I can watch your lips. Let's try it again. Pax Romana. That means peace, Pax of Rome, Romana. The peace of Rome was a law. You must not rise up against the emperors. In fact, the, the, the Roman emperor really only cared about two main things. One, as he ruled his empire, one, you got to collect your taxes. That means you got to pay them. He had to have money coming into the Roman coffers. They were incredibly wealthy. And number two, you got to keep the peace. A governor who did not do this, a governor who ruled at the whim of the emperor, who did not keep the peace, would be recalled by the emperor, by the Caesar, to possible execution. A lot of governors, a lot of rulers were put to death because they could not keep the peace. So really what you have from Tertullus is a veiled threat. If you don't want to be recalled by the emperor, then you better put this man to death because he is causing riots all over the empire. That was a knockout blow. But Paul did not go down. The second punch was the accusation that Paul was a ringleader of a sect, a word for heresy. Now let me tell you something about the Roman Empire. They really didn't care what religion you worshipped. As long as you worshipped the Roman gods. You can add any god you want into it, but you had to worship the Roman gods. Now, the only religion that the Roman Empire came fiercely down upon was Christianity because of this. Christianity says there is only one god, and it's not a Roman god. It is Jehovah and he alone do, what, do we worship. You see, the Christians in Rome would not worship the Roman gods. They would accept joyfully their execution. And they kept their faith in the worship of Jehovah. And Rome hated them. So here comes again the second veiled threat from Tertullus. The guy is a genius. Here is a ringleader of a sect. The word sect means heresy or additional religion. Earlier, you might remember the Roman governor, Pilate, when he put Jesus to death, he crucified Jesus. Do you not remember that he had a sign made and nailed on that cross over the head of Jesus? And that sign says this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You see, Nazarenes were people from Nazareth. And Tertullus, who would not mention the name Jesus, accused Paul of being the main leader of those who worshiped Jesus as king. And it wasn't so long before that Jesus was put to death that this Roman emperor or Roman governor would have forgotten that sign. Now, the third blow was that Paul profaned or desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. Let me tell you again what was going on behind this in the Jewish temple. 
There was the court of the Gentiles. This was massive. This was five football fields big, the temple grounds, the outer court, the court of Gentiles. You didn't need to be a Jewish person to go into that court. You could go there and worship God, but you could not go any further in. And there was a low wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the next court in, which was the court of women. Jewish women, Jewish men could go into there, but no Gentile could. And there were warning signs at every gate any Gentile that goes beyond this point will have his death on his head. It's the only time that Rome gave Jews the permission to execute somebody on the spot, even if that person that violated it was a Gentile. So Tertullus says that Paul profaned or desecrated the temple, meaning that he brought a Gentile, which he did not, into the temple and he's trying to get Paul executed. The rest of the Jews cheer up. They're all around the octagon. They're cheering their fighter Tertullus on. They join in. And now Paul mounts his defense. Number two. And when the governor had nodded, verse 10, to him to speak, Paul replied, no flattery. I want you to notice this. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He had no flattery. He just appropriately recognized that Felix had been the governor. He'd been the governor for five years in Israel. And then he goes on, verse 10, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, it's the earliest name for the church, for the Christians, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law of God, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, he's a Jewish man, to Israel, and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me." So here's his defense. First, he refuted the charge of sedition by pointing out that he had only gone to Jerusalem 12 days ago. Obviously, you could not be causing a riot in that short of a time. In five of those 12 days, he'd been a prisoner in Caesarea. He, you can't cause that riot in seven days. He simply did not have time to organize a rebellion. And then he pointed out there's no eyewitnesses. Nobody can report him arguing with anyone. He was not arguing with a person. They stirred everything up. Second defense. Now he's blocking the blows of Tertullus. He will not inflict a blow, but he will block them all. He admitted to being a follower of the way, verse 15, but it is not a heretical sect. It was a, the earliest name for the Christian church. It points to Jesus, John 14, 6. I am the way. Now listen, everybody. 
This is really important. These are the words of Jesus. That's why it's in red. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why they're called the way. Because they follow Jesus, who is the way to the Father. It also referred to, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So if the early church called the Christians the way, it was because they found their way onto the narrow road that leads to Jesus, who will take them to the Father. And now his third defense was the fact that he was in the temple undergoing purification. He was not desecrating it. And they had no witnesses that anyone could say anything to the contrary. And you need to note that they brought not one single witness because they simply had none. Now, I do think it's important for you and I to know that people are going to accuse you falsely. Christian, If you are a follower of Jesus, listen, at some point, the bolder you live, the more you're going to be accused falsely. This is what the enemy does. This is what the devil does. He is the devil, diabolos, which means the accuser of the brethren. He tries to divide. His false accusation is one of his favorite ploys, but there's no power behind the punch, for God is our defender. If you live like Paul with a clear conscience towards man and God, you will have the best defense you could ever imagine. Now, I told you Paul doesn't give a punch, but he does end the match with this in verse 20. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, that was last week with Pastor Kyle, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He's saying to Felix, the governor, they have no proof, they know it. And with that, the bell rang and the match was done. But what will be the decision? You got Tertullus retreating to one corner. You got Paul back to the other corner in this octagon. Now you've got the judge making the decision. And look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he had a a rather, well, let me put it this way. He was familiar with Christianity. He put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. That's a great stall technique. But what he's really wanting to do is get beyond the written report and get it from the tribune's mouth. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept, Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Now, if you're in prison today... And some of you may have been in prison, and some of you may be in prison one day, but let me tell you, you go to prison today, you get TV, you get your meals, you get some clothing, you get your hygiene products. You know what? None of that happened in the first century. You go to prison in the first century, if you don't have friends feeding you, you don't have family bringing you food, you will literally die in prison. They provided nothing. So Felix says, do not prevent his friends from meeting his needs. 
I have found that the most difficult people to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with are those who know about Christianity. They brought up in a religious environment, but they will not believe Christianity. And this was Felix, who had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Now, what is that? Let me kind of take you a little bit deeper. Do you remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the disciples that Jesus chose? James is the older brother. That's why the Bible always refers to them, James and John. That's important. That means he's the older brother. James was the older brother. Now listen, let me tell you what happened to James. Ten years after Stephen was martyred in Acts 8, James was put to death as well. He was falsely accused And according to records, as he was led to his execution, this is James, as he was led to his execution, seeing his courage, seeing his unfaltering faith in Jesus, his false accuser rushed to him, fell at the feet of James and repented of his false accusation and right there on the spot placed his faith in the Savior of James, Jesus Christ. And that new believer determined that James would not die alone. And on that day, the heads of two Christians were taken off by the sword. The one who gave the command to kill them was King Herod Agrippa I. He was a king of Judea. He had a daughter, and her name was Drusilla. She is the sister of a king that we're going to meet next week in round three. She was renowned for her beauty. She's now on her second marriage to Felix. He is on his third marriage. In fact, Felix hired a magician to lure Drusilla away from her previous husband and married her when she was 20 years old. She was raised a Jew, but she had turned her back on God and entered into this unholy marriage. Her husband, the judge of this bout, was Marcus Antonius Felix. He is the governor of Rome in the land of Judea. He has a rags to riches story. He was born as a slave. He and his brother Pallas were both slaves, but for some unknown reason which nobody can remember, the mother of Prince Claudius, the future Caesar, frees them both from slavery. And as they grew up, Pallas became a close friend of Claudius, and when Claudius became the emperor of Rome, he convinced Claudius to give to his brother Felix a government job, government job in Judea, where he eventually became the governor. But the slave never left the man's heart. He ruled with vengeance. He ruled with complete and total dominion, with cruelty and lust. He he incited a dramatic increase of rebellion among the Jewish people. Now, all of that helps make sense of what is about to happen as he deferred his judgment of the case to when Lysias would come. He kept Paul in prison. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. This is important. He kept him in prison for two years. 
And he and his wife, Drusilla, whom I told you about, sent for him, verse 24, and heard him speak about faith in the actual Greek. It's the faith, the faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is explaining to them the gospel and they're having a discussion. He's not preaching. They're discussing. And in their discussion, Paul zeroed in on the dilemma of every person. And I'm going to show you what he did, but I'm going to ask you to do something. Can you, every one of you look at me for a moment? All the way in the back pew, all the way in the front pew, both sides, even up in the balcony. Would you look at me for a moment? What you're going to hear from Paul are the major ingredients of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And listen, some of you, some of you may be lost in your sin and not saved. I don't have the power to convince you to be saved. But if God is convicting you, you will feel a heat right now inside of you. You will feel a battle inside of you. You will fear even anxiety. You will have anxiety inside of you. You will feel something because God will be doing a work in some of you to say it is time for you to believe. Now watch what Paul does. He says, and if you track it through the passage, you can see it, that God's holy demand, God, your creator, demands that you be righteous without sin. Are you without sin? I'm not. And you know what? I know something about you, even if I don't know you personally. You're not without sin either. You have defied your creator. You have rebelled against him. You have kept him at a distance. You have tried to manipulate God just like I have. You've tried to control the one who created you. You are not righteous. But you must be if you want salvation. And here's how you can be righteous. Will you believe and trust that Jesus came and died for you? And that his blood that he shed to the point of death was blood that he shed for you? So that you might have your sins taken away and be declared righteous in his holy Father's sight. The only way to be righteous, it is not by trying harder. It is not by performing more good deeds. It is not trying to break your habits of sin. You cannot be righteous in that way. You can't even be righteous by wanting to be righteous. And the only way you can be righteous is putting your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And you will be made righteous. Now let me tell you, he goes on. There's three ingredients. That righteousness that Christ will give you enables you to live self-controlled lives, something that this hedonistic governor and his wife sorely needed to hear. They were lovers of pleasure. Do you know why he kept Paul in prison for two years? The text tells you. He was greedy. He kept hoping Paul was, would pay for his pardon. But Paul refused. Why would he? He's right where God wanted him. He's declaring the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. 
You must live self-controlled lives. You know how you live self-controlled lives? It's when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes down and dwells in you. And it begins to work in your new heart and gives you new desires that you never had before. He changes you from the inside out. The world can only change from the outside in, and it won't get all the way in. The Spirit of God goes all the way to the center of who you are, begins to change who you are, begins to take out old desires, and puts in new desires that are His desires. And then all of a sudden, you don't want that beer anymore. You don't want that liquor anymore. You don't want that drugs anymore. You don't want that sex anymore before marriage. All of these things are changes in you because God is the one bringing the change to bear. But what put the fear of God in Felix is the third part. And that is, there is a coming judgment, Felix. Felix, verse 25, was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. As soon as he said to Felix, a man of authority, the slave never left his heart. He was unjust. He was brutal. He loved lust. He loved sin. The moment Paul declared to him, you will answer for this. God is going to hold you to account. You will stand before him. There is a coming judgment. It absolutely filled them with fear and terror and alarm. And instead of submitting and surrendering to Jesus Christ, he said to Paul, get away from me. For two years, they talked on and on and on, and I can probably virtually assure you, Paul did not stray from the gospel. He kept telling Felix, you got to be righteous, and that righteousness will change your life, and it better change because there's a coming judgment of God for you. Have you ever talked to somebody, somebody over and over? You know they're not saved. Month after month about the gospel, you love them so much, and still they will not believe. I have a message for you from the life of Paul. Do not give up. While they have breath, there is still yet hope. Paul never gave up. But sadly, terribly, and tragically, it appears that Felix and Drusilla just would not believe. Instead of deciding the case of Paul and his Jewish accusers, he decided no to the free offer of salvation. He committed the fatal error of procrastination. He put it off for one more day, and then one more day. And history tells us, you want to know what happened to Felix? Well, history tells us that Emperor Nero recalled him. He removed him from office because of the constant uprisings in Judea, and he would likely have been executed if it wasn't for his influential brother, Pallas, who pleaded for his life. Yet he and his wife faded from the scenes of history, apparently never believing in Jesus. For the last time, I'm going to ask you to look at me. And I'm going to ask you to be honest. If you are hearing this message right now, whether you are here in person or you're hearing it in a podcast, 
And you have not yet believed on the one who died to forgive your sins. I need to tell you. I need you to hear it. I need you to brace yourself with courage. You are not promised tomorrow. You are not promised tomorrow. And for those of you who are curious about Jesus, interested in Jesus, but you will not yet believe your hearts are not softening, they are hardening. And eventually, any spark of faith that could have been there will be completely extinguished. And one day, you are going to face your coming judgment. That is not a threat, my friends. That is a plea for you to understand. And if you have no righteousness which has given evidence in a changed life. You will stand before Jesus, your judge, completely helpless. And all you're going to hear are the words of the kindest being this universe has ever known. He will say to the depth of your soul, get away from me. I have never known you. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something very, very brave and very, very honest. If you know that you are not a believer and you know God is pursuing you, I'm going to ask you to stand right now. You're not going to have to come forward. I'm asking you to stand where you are. I'm just going to pray for you. Would you be courageous enough to do that? Is there anybody? Is there anybody else? It takes such courage to stand. It may be the best time in your life you've ever stood. Is there anybody else? I'm pleading with you. Do not do what Felix and Drusilla did. Do not put this off. Is there anybody else? I see you. Is there anybody else? I'm going to ask everybody that's not standing to extend your arms towards the ones who are. It's the way that the priests would bless. And those of you who are standing, would you close your eyes with me? There is no magical prayer in the Bible. There's just a heart that is honest before God. And I would suggest you pray something like this. Heavenly Father, would you please forgive me I am standing because I know I need forgiveness. I do not have a righteousness of my own. And I do not want to ever hear your words, depart from me for I never knew you. Father, would you forgive me? I believe that Jesus loves me. I believe that he died on the cross. 
I believe he died for me and I believe that he will forgive me. And I'm asking that you do that. Would you save me? And give me eternal life. And Spirit of God, would you come down into my heart? You promise that you will. Would you live there? Would you teach me how to live in a way that is joyful, that is satisfying for your pleasure? So that one day when I stand before you, I will stand there confidently righteous because of what Jesus has done for me, not what I've done for you. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.